Welcome to Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. This podcast celebrates those that don't follow the flock. Across the series, I'll be having conversations with some of the world's most notorious black sheep. We'll hear their stories told through the rules they've broken. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our black sheep this week was once convinced she'd never write a novel. Flash forward a few years or decades, and she's now published 14 of them. Marianne Keyes is a best-selling author around the world, published in 36 languages, with a total of over 39 million books sold to date. And now her latest book, Grown Ups, has just reached the top of the fiction charts, so I'm sure those numbers are rising fast. Marianne is a literary disruptor. Having broken rules in inverted commas here, popular fiction, she penetrates right through the light and breezy marketing surrounding her work and hits us with the dark, difficult and complex ailments that are ingrained in modern life. Addiction, depression, domestic violence and in Grown Up she deftly explores the eating disorder bulimia. Throughout all Marianne's work she never loses the balance of compassion, humour and hope. An incredibly difficult balance to strike but perhaps one that resides deeply within Marianne herself. Marianne was born in Limerick in the 60s to a loving family, and by the age of 30, she was an alcoholic and suicidal. Soon after leaving rehab, she published her first book, Watermelon, and ever since, the novels have kept on coming. She's now returned to life in Ireland and is in a loving marriage with Tony, who she refers to on social media as himself. (laughs) Marianne once confessed, I was born without the rule book when everyone else was at a briefing on how to deal with life. I must have been off looking at shoes or something. (laughs) An admission that couldn't fit this podcast better. Marianne, welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased you're here. So am I. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The podcast, as you know, is called Black Sheep. Yeah. I wondered if you thought of yourself as a black sheep. It's funny. I had never actually used that term about myself because I always think it sounds quite glamorous. Do you think? Yeah, like the black sheep in any family in fiction is always, you know, a sexy man who just <laughs> wouldn't do what he was supposed to do. And and he was very charismatic and, and you know, lived a kind of a, an interesting and full life. It's actually not much fun being a black sheep. Mm. I think, especially if you've internalised society's rules or, you know, the rules that your family have given you. Um, I always felt like I got things wrong or I wasn't good enough um, or I just couldn't, you know, meet my marks. And that's that's a tough way to live. But now that I'm, you're calling me a black sheep, I like it better. Yeah. And I suppose I'm OK with who I am today. Mm. So maybe, yeah, being a black sheep is is quite nice. And do you think when you were perhaps a teenager, feeling like a black sheep was difficult to voice? It was extremely difficult. I mean, I didn't have the confidence and I didn't have the language. Um, and I knew things like, you know, because I was, I was brought up in Ireland, which was, you know, very religious. And mm. there was so much I was told not to do. You know, Like what? Well, you know, don't have a boyfriend and you know, and don't do anything sexually risky. I mean, like kiss him, Mm. you know. um, And 
go to mass and don't have opinions that clash with the opinions that the grown-ups have. Um, and I knew inside me that there was an awful lot wrong with the fact that we were living in practically a theocracy. Um, and I was unable, I didn't have the courage to say it. And I didn't even know the words. I mean, I wouldn't have known theocracy. Mm. Um, and I, I knew nothing about the language of feminism, for example. So there was sort of this civil war going on inside me in that I had all these internalised messages about what not to do. Um, and then I had the intellectual part of me, which was saying, all that stuff is nonsense. And I was unable to make peace with it. And yeah, it was quite, it was hard. Mm. I want to track through this journey of you kind of feeling those things to then being yeah. able to actually probably put them on the page. So perhaps we should jump in to yeah. the first rule that you've broken. Um, the first rule um, that I've broken is. If your degree is in law, you have to be a lawyer. And I studied law in university and I was the first in my family to go to college and they were so proud of me. And uh, but when my degree was done, I went to London and I became a waitress and I lived in a squat and I thought it was fabulous. You and know, having just heard about your family, mm, what was their response to that? They were devastated. I mean, I think my poor mother is still holding out hope that I'll go back <laughs> and do my apprenticeship and, and become a, become a, let me see, a property lawyer. I think, right. or, or maybe, yeah, maybe doing wills. I think that kind of fills a lot of her head at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they had visions for me that I felt unable to, to meet. Um, I was really intimidated by all the other people in my class. And they all came from families where, you know, their dads were lawyers or barristers, you know, and they belonged in that world. They felt they deserved to be there. And my family wasn't like that. Both my parents came from poverty and it was only through like a lot of hard work that they managed to kind of get me into the kind of mindset that would even go to college. And uh, I knew I'd never flourish in that world. It was just a place to hide. Mm. But like I had no vision ever of having a job. I had no idea of a future for myself. Um, had you ever? Never. No, like when other kids are asked at school, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I had no sense of a job or a role or a time in my life when I'd be happy and and that I'd fit in like I never did um and another thing like I was reading a book the other day where like people talked about the marriages that they'd visualized you know when they were a child I never did mm. ever I, I felt that none of that would be given to me and do you think that's because growing up in Ireland at that time, there wasn't the kind of ideas that, that might have satisfied you on the page, on the screen, in the paper? Or was it more that you just didn't know? I think, I mean, there were no role models. That's I mean, kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, my mother had to give up her job by law when she got married, mm. you know, and and men dominated every area of public life. And, you know, men really were the ones that 
decided what went and what didn't. Like women had so little power. But I think it was the person I was as well. You know, I personally had, you know, I was quite nihilistic from a very early age. In what way? Just that thing of like, I could never see positive outcomes and I could very much visualise disasters. For yourself? For myself, yeah. Even yeah. though you'd clearly nailed it through school because you'd got into, you know, yeah. a, a law course. And... No, but I felt I felt I couldn't manage things like friendships. Like, I always felt like I was the third wheel. I just had zero confidence in myself. I had so little self-esteem. And how did that manifest? Well, I worried all the In your the time. voice, in your head? Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, I found people difficult, you know, I, and I have since discovered like I'm a massive introvert, like I'm a really, I'm a cute introvert, um, but I could be with people only for a certain amount of time and then I'd have to go to my room and read. Mm. I had to recover from other people um, and nobody else was like that. I think I was just, obviously I was more sensitive mm. um, or weaker and I don't really like that word anymore. I was simply different and I was more attuned to myself. You know, I knew what I couldn't do. What yeah. made you go from Ireland to London? Because Ireland was so claustrophobic and you could do nothing. I mean, it was so judgy and like everybody knew everybody. That's how it felt. And the idea of London was so attractive because, you know, you can be anonymous in London. It's so big and people don't care, mm. you know, and people aren't nosy the way they were in Ireland and I just felt I could be anything I wanted when I came to London. And were there other people that were going to London yes. at the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Connor McCabe um, was living in a squat in Hackney. He was on the 21st floor. Um, you were of, way ahead of the time. Yes, I know. <laughs> it was, you know, and the thing was, I it was thrilling. It was really fabulous. It was such fun, you know, and we used to sleep all day and then we'd go out to nightclubs, you know, in the evenings. And it was, it was fabulous. And did you know what you were searching for at that point or not really? Well, I knew I wanted, like, I wanted love. You know, I did. Um, and I wanted romantic love. And had you had that before? Yeah, I had. I had. Um, I'd had a boyfriend kind of all my way through college. And and that ended. And, you know, and I was kind of seeking that feel. I mean, I was looking for outside, oh, what's the word? Endorsement. Mm -hmm, you know, I was mm -hmm. looking for things outside of myself. To Validation. Me. Validation, exactly, yeah. So I thought if I, I had an impressive boyfriend that, it would make me feel better and that I would look better to the outside world. Um, and, you know, I knew I didn't, I, I felt that it would be shaming to have a kind of a regular job, you know, kind of a nine to five office thing. Um, and what made you think that considering your parents probably mm, wanted it? I think because I probably was a creative without ever making hard and fast efforts to 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 harness that mm. in myself and also I suppose because my parents had worked so hard you know the idea of being a writer was just no way could you do that because my dad was so about kind of pen, a pension and a, a reliable job you know he was he wanted security for me for all his children and I had really internalised that as well as feeling that it wasn't what I wanted. 
So how did you kind of find your creativity? Oh, it took a long time. Was it while you kind of on that journey to London or not really? Oh no, like not at all. Um, it wasn't until I was 30 that I started writing. So one, you, you came out of law school yeah. and you were working as a, wait, a waitress. waitress. And then I got a job in, um, in an accounts office. And then I moved to the accounts office of the Architectural Association, which is, a, um, you know, an architectural college yeah. in London. And I worked there for eight years. And how were you feeling at that point? Were you, you, I, I assume surrounded by white sheep, if we're thinking about yeah, the black sheep kind yeah. of meaning. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was normal to hate your job, you know, that everybody did. Um, and I, I couldn't see any way out. I thought, this is who I am. This is what I do and it's what I will do. But, but it doesn't make me happy. And what did make you happy at that time? Well, nothing really. I mean, I thought drinking did. You know, like this was, you know, I think I was an addict long before it ever became clear to me. But Meaning an alcoholic. Yeah. But like alcohol was my coping mechanism. Like my entire 20s were spent in this box that I didn't fit in. Like professionally. Mm. And so you were kind of switching off to that through your addiction. Yeah, I Mm self-medicated. Yeah. And did it work for a while? It did work for a while. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't all misery. Um, And did you share that misery with anyone? Well... You just spoke of Connor that you lived with. Yeah, yeah. Or was it a private misery? I don't know how private it was. I mean, I just thought everybody hated their job. Like all of us who worked in the office, we laughed about it. You know, we thought it was, it was funny. There was camaraderie in it. Mm. Um, And at that time, did you know anyone that did like their job? Well, Connor, funnily enough, I mean, he, he had worked, I mean, he, he was a fashion person and he, worked for Paul Smith for a long time and then he went back to college. He went to Cordwainers and trained to be a shoemaker and and I envied him that. I thought that would be a fabulous thing to do. And just thinking about the kind of self-narration that you spoke about mm. as a teenager, mm. when you looked at Connor, yeah. did you think, oh, I might be able to achieve that or not? Not, not at mm. all. It seemed like Connor was born a creative and that's what he would always do. So at that point, did you not recognise yourself? Not and I'm laughing because you're, you know, such a representative of yeah. literary creation. Oh, so. not at all. I mean, genuinely, sincerely, I had no idea. All I knew was that I liked funny people and I liked people who were good at telling anecdotes and and I liked to be with those people. Mm. And I was part of that in that I could make people laugh. Like I knew I could tell a good story. But... Translating that into into a job, it, it was out of the question. <laughs> it, it, the question wasn't even asked. It never occurred to me. And were you reading at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see, I'd always read. Um, from the age of about six, you know, books were my drug of choice. They were my first one. And books, and I read 
anything because I didn't have the money to buy books. So my boss would give me some or people would recommend, or you know. And so I was getting this kind of incredibly varied and diverse selection of books to read. And it was great. And what books resonated with you? Have you got kind of ones that just feel like pivotal in your journey? Yeah. Um, Heartburn. By Nora oh, yeah. yeah. And then a book called Fabulous Nobodies, which it's, I mean, it's a classic. It's by an Australian writer called Lee Tullock. And it's about a young woman living in New York, working on the door of a nightclub. And it was, it's so funny. It's witty. It's, you know, it's all about the fashion world. It's, and it's chatty. It's, it's confiding. And I think that was part of my apprenticeship of being a writer, mm. that that's what I wanted to write. You know, I wanted to write books that were very conversational. And did those books give you hope whilst you were experiencing that sense of misery that you just described so well? Well, I mean, they didn't kind of shine a light on a career path or anything, but I loved them. Mm. You know, I enjoyed them enormously and reread both of them several times. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were having this life as this London, East London life as a waitress, uh, sleeping through the day. Yeah, well, that only went on for a little while. Um, I was mostly in the accounts office. Right. Yes. And I guess just thinking about what your second rule is, um, and we won't go there yet, okay. but how do you think that um, the influence of alcohol increased during this time? Well, I mean... Alcoholism is a progressive disease, which means it gets worse. So it got worse. You know, I drank more. Um, Until the point came where it was obvious to everyone except me that I was an alcoholic. Marianne, will you tell me the second rule that you've broken, please? Okay, um... Addiction is a choice. Um, There are so many people who think that addiction is a moral failing, that it's something that a person chooses because it's fun to be drunk a lot of the time and and it's great to have um, an escape route for not showing up for life's responsibilities. But I think I was born genetically predisposed to addiction. So before alcohol came into your life, mm. what do you think your other addictions were? You just said books, which yeah. is yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. and sugar. Um, uh, yeah, and anything that changed my feelings, anything outside of myself that changed my feelings, um, like TV shows. Um, I mean, there wasn't much in the way of kind of um, escape in Ireland. Um you know, there was only one children's TV show that was on every Saturday. It was called Wanderly Wagon. But, you know, my week revolved around it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember drinking um, Seven Up and just, oh my God, the taste of it, the effect it had on me. And I tried to create, recreate it with with water and sugar. I, you know, I thought the bubbles in the Seven Up, <laughs> I was really young at the time, you know. But I tried making it. You know, which kind of tells me a lot, I think, about how I was already sort of bonded with things outside of myself in Mm -hmm. order to make me feel better. And do you think that as an addict, perhaps from birth? Yeah. um, yeah. You were aware of it before alcohol came into your life or not? You see, the thing is, um, 
my dad's sister was an alcoholic. So, and I knew about it, like from the age of about nine, you know, I knew about alcoholism. And I remember making the decision when I started drinking in my teens that I would not become an alcoholic. I would not allow that to happen to me. Um, never say yeah, never, right? I know, as, as if... As if you can just decide, you know what, I'm not going to become an addict, you know, uh, um, as if as if somebody would decide to do that. Um, and I that kind of kept me in a state of thinking I was safe for a long time. And did you kind of always like drinking? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. From the first time I drank, it was like I didn't feel like... Uh, the oddball any longer. I felt it was a, a eureka moment. It was, I thought, this is what other people feel like. This is what it feels like to be normal. You know, and I thought, I have found the missing bit of me. And I thought, so long as I have this, I'll be able to navigate life from now on. Mm. Like, it, it felt like a wonderful thing to discover. And so, how did it manifest in your daily life? Well, it didn't for a long time in, you know, it it didn't because psychologically I was enthralled to it, but physiologically it took a lot longer. Um, what do you mean by that? Just that I had already made, I'd already fallen in love with it and kind of surrendered myself to it and thought, this this is, this is what will help me. But I didn't drink a lot for a long time. It's just I knew it was there. Mm-hmm. And from very early on, I thought... People drank for oblivion. I didn't, I, I understood nothing about two glasses of wine at dinner. Mm. I honestly thought it was to take a person away from themselves. You know, I thought that the point of alcohol was to get drunk. So it had become part of the culture? Yes. Well, your culture, I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at what point do you feel there was a turning point? I don't think there was. Mm. I think it was just a steady increase you know I think it was always inevitable I don't think I suppose people talk about crossing the line physiologically where their body is no longer able to stop but for me it was always going to happen I was always going to hit a wall and when you say it's not a choice can you expand on that what do you mean that people would say to me you have to stop and I'd say, okay. And did you believe you could? Yeah. I mean, I often, you know, when I'd wake up in the horrors with the shame and the guilt, I think, that's it, I've got to stop now. And I would mean it, really mean mm. it. And it would last a couple of days, a week. You know, one time I gave up for three months. Stopping is easy, but staying stopped was impossible for me. Um, and why was it impossible? Because I couldn't bear living with myself. I couldn't bear my own self-hatred. I couldn't bear the shame that I was carrying around with myself. And, you know, my life was very stalled at that time. And so long as I drank, I could keep myself away from looking at how bad it was. Mm -hmm. But when I stopped drinking, all of those feelings became too much. And it was inevitable, absolutely guaranteed that I would eventually drink again. And I always did. 
So you said before, you know, it was inevitable I was going to drink to oblivion. Mm. How did you end up finding rehab? It was a cry for help sort of a thing. There was one Monday morning in January of 1994 and I woke up and I just had that feeling of this can't go on, but I don't know how to stop. And it's a really horrible, horrible way to feel. Um, So I was on antidepressants and sleeping tablets, so I took them all. And then I rang somebody I worked with. Meaning an overdose? Yes, yeah. yeah. And he organised an ambulance. And he rang my parents in Dublin. I was still living in London. And my dad got me into rehab. Connor, Mm. that I spoke about, flew back with me to Ireland two days later. And um, and I went into rehab for six weeks and it was the changing point in my life. You know, once I was in there, I saw it all. I saw everything so clearly. Before that point, would you say the word alcoholic wouldn't have resonated with you? No, it didn't. I mean, I really thought that I was suffering from depression and that alcohol was my... It was the only thing that helped me, I thought. It was the solution. It certainly wasn't the problem. Did you think the antidepressants were helping you? I don't think so. I mean, the thing was, I was pouring like a powerful depressant into my body. Right, of course. I mean, the antidepressants had no hope, (laughs) you know. Um, And I don't think I was depressed. Not, Not clinically. I think I was depressed from pouring this powerful thing into me. I'm just thinking about this kind of so-called rule that addiction is a choice. Is there a part of you that thinks you are unwilling to recognise the term alcoholic because of that sense of or the negative connotations that are associated with it? I mean, I knew I I would have to stop. Mm. Um, No, but I think denial is a very real thing. Mm. Like, and I constantly normalised my abnormal life, you know, and every time I did something else, like not going to work or drinking in the morning, like, I I kept telling myself, this is temporary. Did anyone ever notice? The, oh, my God, completely. Yeah, at work. Yes, of course. Yeah, everyone around me knew, except me, because yeah. I couldn't. You know, again, it wasn't a refusal. It was an inability to see, because... I was protecting my drinking. It was too important to me. I felt I couldn't live without it. Um, So denial is a very real thing. I know people get very, very frustrated when they're trying to help Mm. alcoholics or addicts, you know, that the person refuses to see. But they're not refusing. They are unable. And how did you become able? When I was in rehab... And away from everything. And immersed, steeped in addiction, myth-busting. And and just seeing it in all the people around me. Because we all came in thinking we were okay. Um, Hmm. And it was just, you know, people from our lives came in and told us how, how awful it had been living with us. And it just became utterly impossible to sidestep the truth. There's a a general kind of thought that in therapy you're searching for the root cause. Mm. What do you think of that? I don't think. I, I mean, for me, I think 
I had the gene. It was something I was born with. And, you know, so many alcoholics I know say that. You know, I mean, trauma can trigger the need to kill the pain. But I think I came into the world an alcoholic in waiting. Mm. You know, I didn't have that that trauma. But you did speak about your childhood or teenage years with yeah. that sense of, well, that black sheep-like feeling, but also yeah. that sense of, um, I don't fit in. Yeah. Do you think that, that was a connect, there was a connection yeah, there? Yeah, I do, I do, I do. Yeah, alcoholics talk a lot about the ism, you know, the alcoholism. Um, and it's like a series of personality traits that seem to be um, part of the alcoholic personality. Um, like low self-esteem and like that kind of constant searching outside of myself mm. for things to make me feel worthy. Like, you know, good job, like money, like a relationship, like status. And And we all agree that like... There is no amount of those things that will fill the hole. And does that ever go away? Has that gone away for you? It has, yeah. I mean... But now you are such a successful author. You're in, and we'll hopefully talk about this a bit more, such a loving relationship. Do you think those things offer validation or not? This is going to sound incredibly ungrateful, but they can't. I don't think that sounds ungrateful. It sounds like you've changed your perception of yourself. Yeah, yeah, because those things can be taken away in the snap of a finger. Mm. I mean, there are no guarantees that those things will be part of my life. And if they go, where does that leave me? Mm. You know, I've had to go on a different journey in order to realise that I am a worthwhile person. And that involved an awful lot of things, you know, like changing my behaviour, like treating myself differently, um, treating myself with respect. And people often misunderstand that. They think it means standing up for yourself. And and that's part of it. But it means doing things like that don't add to my well of shame. That means not bitching about people. Um, it means not telling other people's secrets as a form of currency. Mm. Um it means doing the right thing when I'd rather not. It means, you know, taking care of people. And when I live well, I feel okay. And if I hurt somebody or do something that damages another person, the shame I feel is awful. And it's not worth it. Um, so that's... You know, what did they, there's a sign in the rooms that says, the person I was will drink again. The person I was will have to drink again. And I completely understand that because the person I was couldn't stop drinking mm. because I couldn't bear my feelings. So an awful, hot, an awful lot had to change inside of me before I was safe to live in the world and not drink. Absolutely. I love that you just used the word well, like to live well. I think in this modern context, 
to live well is to drink matcha and to yeah. like exercise six yeah. times a week and not yeah. touch sugar. But your yeah. living well is moral. It's moral. It has to be. Yeah, I had, I didn't have a moral code mm. when I drank because I was so frightened and I was so formless as a person. I have a strong moral code now because, because I need one, because I, I have to like myself. And I suppose I can only bring it back to myself. I have faith that if I behave decently, I can live without picking up a drink or or going down the path of another addiction. Mm. And do you think the untapping of your creativity led to that sense of self-belief? I don't know, because it all sort of happened at the same time. You know, I had started writing about four months before I went into rehab. What made you pick up the pen? I think it was the fact that I had stopped eating and I was constantly suicidal. And my life felt like this tiny little island that was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that it was an in extremis response you know, the the force in us that wants to keep us alive reached deep inside of me and produced this urge and this ability to write and said, I'll give you this. Will you stay for this? Um, I honestly think that's what it was, you know, and that maybe it would never have come out if I hadn't reached that kind of life-death liminal space. Mm-hmm. There's often a... Um belief that you have to be a tortured artist what you've just said kind of implies that you had to get to that tortured place what do you think about that now you see I don't agree um I am pretty tortured I suppose but I know lots of writers who aren't who are just kind of regular steady (laughs) decent normal people who don't who don't get it you know, addiction or depression or anything like that. And and also there are like upholsterers or insurance salesmen who are really tortured. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it works like that. Um, Do you think creativity for every person, regardless of their industry, is important? No, I don't. I think for lots of people it, it, it means nothing to them and that's <laughs> fine. Um... They don't get it and they don't want to. Um, I think it very much depends on the individual. You know, not, no, like, I don't. So you picked up your pen. Yeah. Before rehab. Yeah. Went into rehab. Were yes. you writing throughout rehab? Oh my God, no, absolutely not. No, no, I mean, like 18 hours a day was focused on recovery. Yeah. You know, like, I was exhausted all the time um, like they worked us really hard and I'm so grateful for that but it was only when I came out and I came back to London and started work again that I thought back at the yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. I mean they were so good to me they were so good to me like they took me back and uh, I decided I'd send off my short stories you know because I was suddenly very hopeful you know rehab had given me that a hope in the future that I'd never had before so Talk to me about your writing routine at that time. I used to come into work an hour early because I didn't have a laptop, I didn't have a computer, I didn't have anything like that. 
So yeah, I used to come into work an hour early, work on whatever I was, well, it became a novel very quickly. And then I'd edit it in the evening, you know, and I do my day's work in between, mm. you know, for, for three years, like I worked like that. And, you know, two of my novels were published in that time. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, so like it took a long time before I made enough money to be able to leave. And at what point did you think this might be the career that will that will give me that satisfaction that I haven't found in my entire 20s? Oh, immediately. Really? Yeah, yeah, immediately. What was that feeling like? It was incredible. <laughs> it was like a dam bursting. It was like driving a really fast car. Um, it was joyous. Like, it was really, really joyous. Like, writing my first book, it was the happiest time of my life. The actual writing process? Yes. Because I hadn't a clue what I was doing and I just thought... Put down anything, throw in anything, and and what came out? If you know, I know it was watermelon. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. It was so discursive, you know. It was a novel, but there was all kinds of asides and, you know, insights into the head of Claire, uh, my character, and it was very much the description of the life and the thought processes of a, a woman in her twenties, and. And how much of you was in that? Some, but not, I mean, Claire is a different person to me. And actually what happens to her in her book, in the book, it well, didn't happen to me. But her chattiness and that feeling of being a young woman who loves shoes, who doesn't have enough money, you know, who wants a relationship with a man but feels ashamed of it because it's not a feminist thing. There was an awful lot of my values, I suppose, that went into the book. And do you think that that has continued throughout all of your novels? Sometimes. I mean, far less of me goes into my books now. You know, so much of it is made up. So when people say writing is therapy... Oh, my God, I absolutely don't agree with that. Um, And I know people say writing this novel or whatever was cathartic. That actually makes me incredibly uncomfortable to hear. Why? Because... Therapy is therapy. You know, it's something that I do in private with my therapist. And I don't want to use a novel to explore how I'm feeling. It feels, I don't know, distasteful. Mm. Um, When I write, I am on very solid ground with whatever I'm writing about. You know, I wrote Rachel's Holiday, which is set in, in rehab about three years after I'd been through rehab and I had huge distance on it and huge understanding at that point. You know, it's up to whoever is writing. They can do it whatever way they want. But for me, writing is not therapy. I write to entertain. I write to tell stories. I write to explore emotional landscapes, but not mine. Mm. Before we move on to looking more at your place in literature. Um, I wondered what you thought, just thinking about addiction not being a choice, of um, social media and how it has impacted mental health and also this mental health movement that seems to be in existence Mm. in popular culture now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of lip service paid and there's no real support. For example... If a person has a heart attack, 
They are rushed to A&E. They are made a priority immediately. If a person gets the courage to admit that they're suicidal, you know, they have to wait three weeks, six months, whatever, to see a therapist. Nobody is rushing anyone to hospital. And they should be. Mm -hmm. If somebody is suicidal, they are in acute danger of dying. And, And nobody reacts like that. They say things like, well, thank you for telling me. Do you know? Like, it's codswallop. And... You know, you can see, like, after after the awful sadness of Car- Caroline Flack dying and the whole be kind hashtag, it didn't last 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, I do think Twitter is a medium that, like, encourages rage and it brings out the worst of people. And I think Instagram idealises people's lives and makes the viewer feel inadequate. And you're so active on social media. Yeah. Do you make a conscious effort? I do, yeah, I do. To kind of disrupt that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, Twitter is about having fun and it's about sharing things I love and sharing things that other people love. But what about if you're going through a time where you don't feel like you're in love with the world? I kind of stay away. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or I might say it's a particularly bad day because I think it's good for people to know that a person can have so-called everything you know the relationship the job the sobriety you know all the lovely things and to know that those things don't necessarily guarantee peace of mind or joy all Mm. the time and thinking about your sobriety do you still get temptation no, I don't because I I take care of myself. Like I, I go to meetings, um, very regularly. I stay in close contact with other recovering alcoholics. Um, I don't. I have no. It's wonderful. I am blind to alcohol. Like mm. I can go out for dinner with people, and they are drinking and I'm not. But I don't notice. Yeah. I have no idea how many bottles of wine they've ordered or. It's that blindness is like the freedom of it is indescribable. And once you found sobriety, did the addiction go somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, I say it's like playing whack-a-mole, you know, that as soon as you get one addiction under under control, another one pops up. Like, I mean, and I could get addicted to anything, like buying nail varnishes or, you know... um, Chocolate, Percy Pigs, you know, <laughs> online shopping. Um, Are you ever addicted to your work? Sometimes, yeah, which is nice. Um, so that's a good addiction. Yeah, it doesn't happen that often. But <laughs> yeah, but there are times when, yeah, I can, you know, I can work really hard for a long amount of time. Mm. Um, most of the time, though, I don't because I like to stay within healthy parameters with my time and energy. Yeah. Um, when your mental health is in a place that isn't so positive, do you feel your work is affected? And Absolutely. If, how do you handle that? Well, I mean, if my mental health is ropey, one of the things I'm afraid of is people um, and, and adrenaline. So if I have public stuff booked or planned, I have to cancel it. And I have to. Um, you know, I take care of myself a lot better now. But like adrenaline is something that's really bad for me. You know, and I need it to do 
TV or public speaking events or whatever. But there's always a hangover. There's always a, a crash. You know, I generate it in order to get through the event. Then afterwards, I feel so depleted mm. and full of self-hatred. Um, and if that carries on, I stop. And what about within the writing process? Can you can you be alone in your... I don't know where you write. Where do you write? In the spare bedroom. <laughs> um, sometimes. I mean, sometimes. But other ways when it affects me, I can't form coherent thoughts. Yeah. You know, at the worst of my times, I couldn't even read magazines. Like I um, I'd have forgotten the start of the, the sentence by the time I got yeah. to the end. So... And I accept that in myself now. And not everyone else does. That Coming back to your question about, you know, mental health and uh, do we treat it better? People are all full of you must take care of yourself until it impacts them. You know, if you say, I'm going through a really bad time and I can't come to your dinner party because I'm terrified of people and I can't sit there for three hours and make pleasant conversation. And, you know, the person that would have been telling you, you know, kind of cancel everything and, you know, you don't have, you don't owe those people anything. Once it's them you're trying to cancel. Yeah. You know, they're not happy. And I have to make that choice. Who do I value more? You know, their good opinion mm. or my my decent mental health. Mm. And it's a hard choice. You know, there's guilt surrounding it. Yeah, there still, is. Isn't there? there is guilt. There is there's guilt and there's judgment. And there is a lack of acceptance and I think most people would be shocked to find to find out how how intolerant they are of other people's poor mental health once it impacts them. Is there a sense of guilt within yourself still? So if you feel like there is a downturn coming? Mm, a bit, yeah. And what about fear too? Yeah, I mean, fear is with me a lot. I'm just that kind of person. Um, it's so funny though. I mean, as we sit here, you know, the coronavirus is a big worry. And I just remember I said to my husband this morning, the things that we worry about are never the things that, that, that you know, hobble us. It's all, always the left field. You know, nobody saw this coming. Right. You know, and I had many concerns about this year and a pandemic was not one of them. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, with fear try to tell myself this is exactly the way things are meant to be and they are this is exactly the way things are meant to be how uh, do you convince yourself of that though well because it's happened yeah and you know when i'm well which is a fair amount of the time i can look at whatever has gone wrong and say okay what can i do with this situation you know how can i how can I learn about myself from this? Mm. You know, in a small way. And to manage your um, mental health now and your inclinations to addiction, what do you do other than your own kind of, like you said, boundaries and things like that? Do you still have therapy? And I do. I do have therapy. Um, and, and I go to meetings. Yeah. Um, and an awful lot of my friends are recovering addicts in one way or another. And it's great because we can have those intense conversations um, about feelings and coping. Um, God, isn't it sad that 
that's not the norm. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it is sad. It is, you know, that, that vulnerability is regarded as something shameful. Yeah. yeah, it is. You spoke so brilliantly at the beginning about your childhood and, and kind of being surrounded by people where you felt you had to kind of zip up. Yes, yeah. And it yeah. feels like you've now kind of unzipped Zipped. in a really confident yes. way. Yeah. It's so empowering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is who I am. And like anyone who wants to mock me for, for being so touchy-feely, you know, they're the ones that are demonstrating narrow-mindedness or... Ignorance. Ignorance mm. and fear, I think, also. I think this is a perfect place for us to jump into the third and final rule that you've broken, please. Which is stay in your sexist literary lane. My favourite yeah. broken rule yeah. that we've had, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I write novels about women and I'm a woman writer. And uh, I've noticed that... Well, you know, the genre that I wrote for when I first started was um, was called Chicklet, which is such, such a diminishing, pejorative label. Like chick. Mm. Chick <laughs> is such a horrible way to describe a woman. It's so, oh, what's the word? Objectifying. Absolutely. And when I started writing, I was writing about the world of post-feminism where, like, literary feminism was a dirty word, like, uh, you know, and we were told, like, the war is over and women are equal to men, you're going to be paid the same, the opportunities are yours, um, you're safe in the world. And I knew none of that was true, like, absolutely none of it. And by writing about those women, you know, where rape is a constant fear or, like, violence is a constant fear, by writing about that, it had the potential to be quite galvanising. Mm. And immediately by slapping this awful label on the genre, it divested it of power. And it made women feel ashamed for reading books about themselves. You know, reading books that articulated their lives and the contradictions and the injustices. Um, but it stopped women from speaking out, you know, because when you mock what a person reads, you take away their confidence in so many other areas as well. And in the beginning, I was afraid, you know, and I would notice things like if a man wrote a book about a family or about emotional landscapes, They'd get reviewed seriously um, and I wouldn't. And when you first started writing or you were first published, yeah. did you immediately feel like you could stand up to that or no, not? No, not at all. So what did you have to put up with? Well, not being reviewed, not getting the media coverage, um, seeing men who wrote books that were identical to mine, um, seeing them outsell me 10 times to one, 20 times to one, see them getting their reviews and the broadsheets, um, see them being long listed for the booker. Um, and how did you handle that? Initially, I, f I mean, I found it frustrating, but I was afraid to articulate it because I was afraid of making enemies. Um, 
you know, and I was afraid if I was too mouthy. I mean, who likes a mouthy woman? Yeah, like, I mean, it's still yeah, to do with gender, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is, oh, completely. Yeah, that like I wouldn't, you know, I would damage myself even more or I'd get a name for myself as that bitter, shrill, chicklish scribbler, you know. And I mean, and any time I did say something, there would be, there would be a backlash. I mean, anyone can see it now. Like you go underneath the comments of any of those awful articles you know anytime a woman does or says anything you know that stands up for women or that criticizes men and the absolute hate that they get and where do you think that fear because i think it is fear from men Mm. or from from anyone that's kind of fearful of that change Mm. is coming from why why is it there i think that they have picked the wrong target i mean women are not stealing men's jobs I think that it's the failure of late stage capitalism that has impacted men so terribly. Um, Like men suffer from the templates of sexism just as much as women in that men are told, you know, be the provider, be the strong person, don't cry, earn lots of money, take care of all the people you love. Um, And capitalism doesn't really allow that, Mm. not in the same way. You know, employment is so much more precarious. Jobs are short term. Um, There just isn't, there isn't, there aren't those guarantees that that there were, say, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think men are very frightened by their lack of power in the world. And that maybe they don't even understand how capitalism is is cheating them so much. And it's far easier to look at women and go, you're taking my job, you're taking my airspace, you're taking my power, um, you're taking my right to hit you when I'm angry away. Um, you're, you're taking away my right to rape you when you won't have sex with me. Um, things like that. Mm. You spoke up in 2018 about the Woodhouse Prize. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Woodhouse Prize rewards comic writing. And in 2018, the prize had had run for 19 years. And in that time, two and a half women had won. Um, (sighs) I know... There was one year that the woman obviously wasn't good enough to have the prize on her own, so they made her share it with the man. (laughs) Yeah. And I had never been long-listed even for the prize. And my books are comic. They are laugh out Mm -hmm. loud funny. Like, I know they are. Like, I've heard it often enough. And I felt that this was one area that was like, it was particular to me. You know, this was where I should have been winning prizes for comic writing. And it was as if I was invisible. And and I criticised it at the Hay Festival. And uh, and the response... Yeah, I mean, it sort of went... It you know, got picked up by the national papers and it caused a mini stir at the time. And the, um, the chair of the Woodhouse Bollinger Prize said, we don't play the diversity game. And everything about that is so wrong. Diversity is not a game. It's not a game for women, you know, and it's not about kudos or prestige. It is about earning a living. And so many female writers do not earn a living because of that sort of attitude. And 
Last year, in 2019, a woman, Nina Stibby, won the prize. And I am both delighted because I love her work and delighted because, is it a coincidence? It might be. I doubt it. I'd like to think it wasn't. (laughs) You see, if I was a man, I'd be sitting here and going, see? Absolutely. I changed it, you know? Yeah, disrupted it. Yeah, they listened to me. Maybe they did. In your previous rule, we just spoke about um, mental health movement and the lip service that's paid through social media. Do you think that there's a similar thing going on in terms of feminism now and the change? Or do you think there is an actual change going on? It's hard to say because there was a study published last week that shows that women's rights have become eroded again in the last five years. Um, And like, yeah, funding to things like women's refuges have been cut. Um, I, yeah, I think we, I mean, and obviously we can see how, how women's reproductive rights have come under such terrifyingly dystopian attack in the United States. Um, I think constant vigilance is what's needed right now. And yeah, probably, um, you know, you see people who would retweet things like it's awful that the women's refuges have been closed down. But then they'd be up in arms about a rape case, you know, that a man was found guilty of raping a woman he knew, as if that wasn't possible. You know, things like the Brock Turner case. People really didn't seem to get Mm. that, like, that a college-educated boy who was good at swimming could be a a rapist. Again, I think people are able to be vocal in the abstract. But once it's impacting in any way on the specifics of their lives they are very much not feminists and they are very much it's the woman's fault this particular book that I have out now has been received really differently and maybe it is because I have been so mouthy and vocal Um, you know the broadsheets have all reviewed me really generously and really they've taken me seriously and the sales have been twice as much for this book as for others, um, but I suppose I might be a rarity. You know, again, I see so many other women not getting that. Mm. Within storytelling itself, meaning the writing process, yeah. do you think there's a gendered approach to narrative I don't, but I think they are absolutely seen entirely differently. Um, You know, you can see it again and again, like I write about families um, and they're serious, well-written books and they're about, you know, the painful stuff of relationships and they're regarded as kind of domestic Mm. sagas or domestic stories. Whereas if a man writes a book about you know, in the same territory, covering the same issues. It's called a state of the nation book or it's called a searing insight into human nature. And they're the same. But there is that, what's the word? Just this judgment that women's visions and their canvases are very tiny, mm. whereas men's canvases 
are on an enormous scale. And I mean, maybe that goes back to the fact that women were in the home or should be in the home still, according to some men, you know, that women just couldn't possibly have that insight and that vision and that ambition. But like, look at Jane Austen, you know, like her books are savage studies of human nature Mm. and the settings may have been domestic it's about the human condition. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. Marianne, I could talk to you for hours, but we are going to be chucked out of the studio at some oh, point. Okay. So can you tell yeah. me, please, the one rule that you will never break? OK, Marion Keys will always stand her round and so will her sisters. Yeah, it was something my dad inculcated into all of us that like... You, you pay your way. You don't rip people off. You're not last out of the... Ta- what is it? First out of the taxi and last to the bar. You can never be that person. You know, I'm... I'm generous and I have a strong sense of fairness. And if people are good to me, I will repay them a thousandfold. I find them repellent. Mm. I feel like this is really connected to your recovery, you know, in in terms of saying being a well person. Yes, yeah. It's about fairness and it's about generosity of spirit. I think if you're mean with money and your possessions, that you're mean with good wishes for people or happiness for other people's success um, or delight at their sudden run of good luck. And I feel I really rejoice in other people's successes. I really get a huge amount of joy out of it. And you're right, when I was still drinking, I felt like all the good fortune in the world was a zero-sum game. So if somebody got something, it meant there was less for me. Right. And I really don't feel like that anymore. Like, I want to give. And, you know, I that's one of the things I love about Twitter, that I, I will big up other women's books, you know, their podcasts, their TV shows, you know, anything, anything where I can bring an audience to other people, I'll do it. Do you ever feel a sense of envy? I feel like envy is such a shameful emotion. I do, of course, of course, of course. And it is a very shameful emotion. Um, And it's awful because it is absolutely, it is ingrained in all of us because, you know, resources are scarce. I think that's what it goes back to, you know, when we were very... You know, when we were cave people, resources were scarce. And if somebody else is getting the berries on the tree, it feels like that there isn't enough left for you. But I think it's okay to have an immediate response of envy when somebody else gets something lovely that one would have wished for oneself. Um, There's no shame in that. There's Mm. absolutely none. It's when it persists and when when it's nurtured and, and when stuff goes on like well, I don't think it was actually that good what they did. You, you know, that's when it becomes, that's when it becomes corrosive, not just for the other person, although they, they won't hear of it, but for oneself. It's unpleasant, I think, for me anyway. I can't really stay in a place of, of hating and resenting mm. another person for their good fortune. It makes me feel worse. Absolutely. 
Marianne, thank you. It was a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and your kind of utter honesty sadly feels so rare. Uh, (laughs) So it's just so um, inspiring to have you sit opposite me and be so upfront and honest. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The honour was all mine. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'll buy your round. (laughs) What's the phrase? Stand your round. I will stand Stand your round. I'll stand my round with you. Good woman. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. 